What's up, everyone, and welcome to Making the Shift. We're an SLP couple from California with three boys and a passion for finding better ways to support autistic kids. I'm Chris. You might know me as Speech Dude. I'm a neurodivergent high school SLP and the creator of the dynamic assessment of social-emotional learning, and I specialize in crafting neurodiversity-affirming IEPs through my online course. And I'm Jesse, a sensory integration trained SLP, owner of a top rated clinic in Los Angeles, and the creator of the Inside Out Sensory Communication Programs for Parents and Therapists. Join us weekly to learn neurodiversity affirming ways to support social emotional development and regulation in autistic kids. Are you ready to make the shift? Let's do it. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Making the Shift. Today, we are joined by Kim Neely, who is an SLP, and she is known for her podcast, The Trauma-Informed SLP. And we actually met at ASHA. So we were, me and Chris were in a presentation on neurodiversity, and then I think you came up to us maybe at the end, and we started chatting. Yeah. Yeah. I sort of snuck in. I was at a different talk that wasn't quite as what I wanted it to be. So I snuck in the back and I think I ran into you guys. Yeah. And it, that was a great one too. We had I will say. Kim and I had this immediate connection. We're like, boom, we're eye to eye. We understood each other and that was great. Absolutely. Absolutely. These are my, yeah. So we got my two ADHD friends on the line today. So Kim, maybe you can tell everyone a little bit about how you got to this place of specializing in trauma-informed care and we're really excited because this is like I was telling you before we hit record this is something that we've we talk about all the time and something we've been wanting to bring to the show but maybe you could just tell us a little bit about what brought you here uh absolutely so um I came into this field later I was a musician first uh did opera for a little bit and then I graduated in 2014 with my master's I did a couple years of a PhD at University of Arizona, didn't finish, but tried to do neuroscience. So I did some neuroscience classes there at the PhD level. Um, And then I went to the Bay Area. My spouse got a job um, because he's in engineering. So that's where you go. So we went over there and I ended up doing some work in Oakland, particularly with kids with behavioral things, usually related to trauma, typically in Oakland. I also did um, a contract one day a week with a specifically PTSD treatment-focused school for kids who were removed from typical school due to their their behaviors there, and um, in Oakland also. So that was kind of where I really started getting a heavy dose of it, I would say, in terms of learning about trauma triggers. I also went through my own mental health, of course, during our grad school because a little stressful. So that helps. Um, I've had my own developmental trauma history and my ADHD diagnosis was actually much later. It was in, I was, I'm 43 now. I think I was diagnosed 39, 40. So, um, which is kind of good because I think I had to work out my own trauma first to figure out the neurodivergency (laughs) part. Um, And then when the pandemic hit, I was already pretty interested in all this trauma-informed things. And then when the pandemic hit, I ended up taking an online graduate school course um, with CSU uh, since we had moved to Colorado by then, which is where we are now. Um, So that was kind of my sourdough starter. I don't eat gluten anyway, so that worked out really well. Um, But I took a course there and then I wanted to kept, you know, I get hyper-focused on it. (laughs) So I want to keep going. So I ended up taking some extra courses through Arizona Trauma Training Institute online. So I have the certification as a trauma support specialist 
the last couple years prior to this year, starting up all this, I was working at a Title I high school in Thornton, Colorado for a couple years, dealing with a lot of that, where a lot of those kids in SPED, um, whether they had mental health or not, they tend to think of us as mental health because they come and talk to us for an hour. So um, I had to learn some mental health first aid and things like that to really figure out what I'm going to do in those moments, essentially. So that's kind of where I ended up with all of this. And the more I started learning, especially in that graduate school course, the more I started to see how big trauma-informed care really is and how I think of it as this really big umbrella where we can put a lot of the things we do kind of under that when it comes to that big picture, cultural humility, cultural awareness, um, understanding difference instead of disorder, that regulation is a huge piece. So um, that's, yeah, it can cover a lot. And especially with neurodivergence, um, I know, I know I've definitely had the social isolation effects and the masking. And I loved the COVID shutdown because I didn't have to mask. That was like where I was like, oh, I feel so relaxed all day. What is this? Because, you know, and prior to that, I was like, why am I so exhausted? I can't do anything. You know, other people are like, I'm going to go to these classes after work. And I'm like, wow, I'm going to go home and stare at a wall because I'm exhausted. Probably because I was masking so much, you know? So, um, yeah. So, and it can be such a, in the regulation piece and just that social isolation and having things go wrong for you when you get misinterpreted. Um, it can be pretty traumatizing, really, long-term to be constantly misunderstood uh, socially. So. That's and what is it that made you take the leap into starting your podcast? Um, probably my complete love of info dumping, quite frankly. And since I got so focused on this, I kept kind of info dumping on all like my friends. And I have this friend of mine who's just finishing grad school, who was my SLPA at the time. And she was like, you need to like do talks and stuff and you need to talk to people about this. And I was like, okay. So I had applied to ASHA to do the talks back in the spring. And then um, when I decided to step away from the school, I was like, you know, that might be a nice time to do, to really focus on it and try to get going with like more training and talking. And I have ideas for possibly being more of a bigger organization with other services, but um, so far just kind of dipping my toe in it with the podcast. Um, Cause I think it's the kind of topic where I think it really could be integrated into our curriculum almost the way bilingualism is. Like it really could just go over a lot of things in our field, but it's been ignored a lot um, or just not really addressed. And also there's also the burnout side of it and the secondary trauma that we can experience as clinicians that um, that I also, you know, get into because that's important for you have to stay regulated for your students and your clients to stay regulated. So but with all the secondary trauma stress we might be experiencing that we don't know about, because we don't always get training on that, <laughs> it can be hard to recognize that you're actually becoming dysregulated by a child meltdown, for example. Um, and so that was the other, it's so funny. I have a friend who's just, she's the sweetest, like 80 year olds, retired physician from Mexico. And she's incredibly sweet. And I told her I was doing the ASHA talks and my burnout one was also going to bring up secondary trauma. And she was like, oh yeah, that's so important. And I was like, okay, my 80 year old physician neighbor <laughs> knows about it. So I feel like, you know, it's part of that bigger umbrella of something that just really needs to be addressed more, I think, and brought in. So. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's not like 
trauma-informed care is new, but like the amount of attention now that we're giving it and that Ash is giving it and that, you know, people are talking about it on social media, that's exciting because you're right. It does need to be part of the curriculum. Mm -hmm. um, And it's such an important piece. Yeah. And it is kind of, I guess, not a lot of good came out of COVID, but you don't have to convince people with like the stats and the prevalence and, you know, it's like, we all know now because we all went through a big mass global situation there. So, yeah. And I know that, you know, as Chris and I talk about all the time, but we're, we're in the current hyper-focused stage of this because we're, we both like have been reading a lot, talking about this a lot, like looking at our family members going, Hmm, I wonder how um, right? it's like, affected them, you know, yeah. and, and you start to see it us. everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. Like once you learn it, you're like, Oh my gosh, I'm like watching TV shows and I'm like, Oh my gosh, that's totally a trauma response. And that whole plot came from trauma. Okay. You know? Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I had, you know, an autistic friend who said to me that you, and I don't know, you know, this was obviously something someone said to me, so don't quote me, especially exactly on this, but it was like something along the lines of, there's inherent trauma in growing up autistic. Yes. And I found that really powerful. And that's, you know, one of the reasons we want to bring it to this show specifically. And maybe you could kind of share a little bit about like why that would be, or, you know, why it's so important for professionals working with autistic kids to understand trauma and parents of autistic kids. Yes. And um, yeah, that's such a good point. I actually have, I I like to share little screenshots from things. So there was an old Twitter thing I saw where an autistic student went to the teacher and said, you know, a lot of the things we associate with autism are things we do when we're unhappy or basically. And, um, and then somebody in her comments responded, or it's, it's when we're unhappy or things that are associated with trauma. And then that the other person said, yeah, because society hasn't raised an untraumatized autistic. And I'm like, that was quite a a hit. I was like, yeah, that feels pretty right. But I think um, a lot of why that is, is because essentially when you're living in a world where your brain is processing things differently, you're thinking about things differently. And especially for me speaking from the ADHD side, but I do have a lot of overlap with autistic traits. um, But I do feel like my brain is still more ADHD. So I identify with that. But, um, you know, you you often get misunderstood. You often get, you know, from a young age, essentially, I have a slide on this on masking where I feel masking really is essentially a fawn response. It's something you learn because from a young age, you go to like birthday parties, even as like a toddler or preschooler and everybody else says, oh, you're that weirdo, you know, and you get kind of pushed off to the side. And I spent a lot of little parties in my childhood sort of crying in a corner, right? So then you're this hypersensitive little crying kid and all of that kind of thing. And so over time, all that cumulative effect, there's that, there's not being understood by parents, there's people thinking your behaviors are being manipulative or being controlling when actually you're just trying to express a need. Um, And so it just, over time, it basically means like you don't have a safe place to be. You don't feel very emotionally safe with other people. Um, You sometimes don't feel physically safe, especially in classrooms where kids get, you know, kind of drug around, um, physically redirected, as they say. Uh, Then you don't feel very physically safe. And inherently what trauma is, is when a threat occurs and your brain labels it a threat to the point where 
it's a threat to your personal safety in terms of physical, emotional, or spiritual, some kind of psychological thing. So if you have that happening over and over and over again, chronically, um, resiliency is going to be worn down, even if you have some to begin with, because um, the more it gets triggered, the stronger that connection becomes that it's hard to be safe. And I think a lot of neurodivergence and specifically autistics struggle to feel safe and struggle to um, interact with neurotypicals, particularly in a safe way so that they feel respected and, you know, feel like they have autonomy and some kind of power um, in that relationship rather than just being compliant or just deferring essentially. Cause yeah. that's not very safe. And I'm glad you bring that up because, you know, I think some people would say, well, don't we all experience trauma? But the point is that um, I know resilient is a, what's the word, Chris? Controversial word uh, to talk about resilience. But, you know, we think about when trauma happens to a lot of neurotypical people, I guess I can't, I I shouldn't even say that. I would say like specific types of trauma, like things that are predictable and controlled, you're a lot more likely to build that resilience from, whereas trauma that's unpredictable and prolonged, like you said, chronic, Mm -hmm. that is the type of trauma that is more likely to change the way your brain functions, essentially. Yeah. And that's, I mean, it's the same type of thing where a lot of minorities in society feel that, right? Where it's like, you're going to be exposed to situations that are potentially traumatic. And so like, I'm, you might hear me say trauma response a lot because that's kind of the like non-official diagnosis way of saying PTSD, basically. Um, <laughs> but uh, traumas are events where a, a, the trauma response occurs because the event happened that's, that was threatening. There can be people who go through the exact same. So resiliency is the idea that, you know, two people could have the exact same experience, say a wildfire or something. Um, and one person can develop a trauma response from that and one might not. So to the one who developed it, that wildfire was a traumatic event um, and it created this trauma. The resiliency is why did that other person not develop it, which is essentially the idea. And what um, what like the tip 57, which is a great document, it's free online, um, says is resiliency usually comes from people who are able to reclaim some sense of safety, either through community or accessing resources, getting mental health those typically are, that's what resiliency shows is those people usually have some kind of other thing in their life that helps to heal from that threat. And people who develop the trauma response just aren't, they don't have that same access. So when you think of the types of trauma, whether it's a single event, like a wildfire would be a single event trauma versus like a chronic trauma or sustained trauma, or even just repeated trauma over time, um, which could be different events, multiple different events over time, what's happening is essentially that resiliency is going to wear down because, well, now you've had threat after threat after threat. So now the amygdala is going to be really like looking for threats, you know, and ready to trigger that. Um, And there's also been some research to show that with trauma responses, the parasympathetic system is sluggish to come online, to actually calm. Um, It takes a lot longer for people with trauma responses to calm. And um, I found a great meta-analysis that wasn't behind a paywall, yay, when I was researching for ASHA um, that talked about how, you know, arguably nervous system dysregulation is actually the primary symptom of PTSD in people because it's just this constant uh, fight or flight or freeze response being triggered over and over and over again. 
and then not having the ability, the body doesn't have the ability to rebalance itself with the parasympathetic because it's become too sluggish and essentially it's not used as much basically. So then the body's not accessing it very well. So, um, so that obviously, I mean, that has a lot of overlaps with, <laughs> with autistic experience in the world. Um, and that's sort of the idea of resiliency versus trauma. And when you think of the dosing, that's the issue with how it wears down on resiliency. It, I think of it as more of the dose in terms of the type of trauma someone goes through um, or how we characterize it. So when you're working with someone who's any kind of minority group, and this includes, you know, Black autistics, they're going to have the Black experience of the issue of safety in society, physical safety specifically, um, and concerns with that in addition to the autistic um, traumas, essentially the social isolation, the rejection, the misunderstandings, all of that stuff. So it just kind of piles on, essentially. The more you add, the more the person is likely to have their resiliency worn down. So Yeah, that makes absolutely. Sense, hopefully. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and I think that information is so good to know, too, and, and for everyone to know, because I think that there's this belief that we go through adversity, and it's like, well, just be resilient. Just do this. And it's like, it doesn't work that way. Like, <laughs> Yeah, a lot of times I think what people think of resiliency is pushing through. And it's like, right. it's totally. actually not pushing through, it's healing. It's part of yes. healing from trauma and like learning to find, get that parasympathetic working again, getting to integrate that midbrain with the upper, which I can talk about too, that physiological piece. We'll get to that. Um, <laughs> but yeah, um, you know, you, you got to get that stuff going again and we can play a role in the regulation piece, that bottom-up processing. We just don't want to necessarily play a role with the top-down processing. That's more mental health life. Um, but you know, we can definitely help play a role with this is how you calm the body if it's over activated and here's how you can kind of process through that emotion. And here's how you can start to understand that this is safe for you. And, um, so I think that trauma informed is really being promoting safety. So emotional, physical, spiritual safety, and also empowerment. So safety is creating a safe space for them, understanding what safety means, what it feels like to be safe. And then empowerment would be them being able to create their own safe spaces as they move along life, which would be ideal. <laughs> ideal. Right, absolutely. And yeah. that kind of goes along the line because this is a fairly new topic for me and which mm -hmm. I love talking about. It yeah. sounds like almost two where one, identifying or recognizing what their childhood trauma was so they can get to a point of the healing process and of mm -hmm. working forward through those. Yes. Yes. And I definitely, yeah. And definitely also like working with mental health people, I think sometimes mental health have come some ways, but um, especially with neurodivergence, sometimes they struggle to put things in a way that they'll understand. Like it's that communication piece that's still really important. So yeah. Um, yeah. So I like the idea, you know, you could teach like mental health concepts, like vocabulary wise, basically to be like, when you go to see the social worker, you know, <laughs> if they mention yeah. this, this is what they're talking about. Um, and it also relates to like alexithymia, which you guys probably know about, yeah. um, which is that inability to recognize the emotion you're feeling, which makes a lot of sense once you understand the physiology around survival mode, because essentially the connections to that frontal cortex has been pretty much cut off or downregulated to the point where it's not really firing. So it's, it's also common in trauma as well for trauma victims to not be able to identify, like they can recognize their body doesn't feel good but they can't label it with an emotion because you need the anterior cingulates connection to Broca's to be able to label that. So, oh. and that is something you see in neurodivergence as well, where they can't label their emotions. 
<laughs> but they can recognize their body energy and how their body feels, which is part of that bottom up regulation. So it's such a, um, which I love autism level up is like my go-to regulation suite. I just love their stuff. I don't know them, but by the way, I love you guys, if you're out there listening, um, <laughs> but I love the energy level meter. Cause I love that. It's not identifying an emotion. You don't require that frontal lobe stuff. It's just, how does your body feel? And let's see if we can get it to feeling the way we want it to feel if we're ready to learn, for example, or something. Um, yeah, we actually that. did a whole show on that energy meter. I have to remember the yeah. name. We'll post it in the discussion. I just did a six hour. They just did a six hour webinar. Um, yeah. Oh, that's right. They did this. And I went to play folks. Yeah. yeah. And if you guys can't tell what you can, Kim knows a lot about the brain and if that is stuff you want to dive into, definitely check out her podcast yeah, if you get you listen. into the details of neurology. But for yeah. today, we would love to, you know, you did an episode where you talked about fight, flight, freeze. Yes. And I would love to kind of maybe get into that. And I love your examples of how it might look at an animal, but maybe we could talk yeah. about like how it might look in a person or like specifically an autistic child, like maybe they're in the classroom or something. I know you've already mentioned earlier, you mentioned fawn, which Mm -hmm. for those of you who don't know, is really a survival mechanism that comes kind of after, right? Um, Lots of response. I don't know if that's more accurate or not, but I call it more of a survival response because it's essentially you're being a people pleaser. You're, you're being compliant. You're being like, if I can just stay compliant and give them everything they want, they won't hurt me. Yeah. And I love that because a lot of people don't know that's what fawn is or what that is, but we see that so much in our kids who are used to compliance-based approaches as Mm -hmm. they go into the state of fawn, which is, I'm just going to do what you tell me to do because I'm too scared of the reaction it's going to cause if I don't. Yep, exactly. Um, Yeah. But maybe you could walk us through a little bit about those other three. Sure. Would you like me to start with the animal analogy and then move into human or? Yeah, let's do it. Okay. So animal then compared to human. Yeah. I use, I use images of deer on my slides. So that's what I used in my podcast, but cause it's easy. I mean, that's kind of almost in a way where we got it from, but fight is essentially, we all know that, you know, if you feel threatened, you might want to punch somebody in the face or something. Right. Um, Typically involves harming others. So for meltdowns, that would be a kid who is lashing out and scratching or biting or pulling people's hair or whatever it is, that's likely a fight response, you know, um, as a way to defend themselves if they're in some sort of survival mode. Flight is eloping, running away, avoiding things. Um, in a deer, this is like, you know, a deer's running away from a mountain lion or something, right? It's going to move. So I think the, for me, the important thing about the fight, flight and the freeze, which yeah, freezes deer in headlights. That's kind of how I think of it. Um, essentially if fight or flight doesn't work, the brain goes into freeze response. If it decides neither of those things will work. Um, and I've heard online, there are some autistics talking about flop, which is supposed to be a little akin to playing dead. I think to when animals do that, we don't have a lot of data, whether humans are doing a flop, but there are kids who just will collapse, like they'll just flop onto the floor. So it's very likely that I wouldn't be surprised. We just don't have like, we don't hear it in the literature, because I think we don't have the data on it in terms of how many humans have that response. But freeze is a little different. It's not quite playing dead. It's more just um, the body gets really still. It's actually really stiff and really still still. Breathing tends to get fast, but shallow. Um, 
And so it's essentially that if I'm really, really still, it's almost like you're trying to pretend to be an inanimate object so that the threat will just leave you alone is kind of the idea around freeze. Um, and the main thing is a lot of times it gets told colloquially like, oh, you know, you e either go into f like one person just does fight. That's their response all the time. But um, the truth is the brain is going to pick what it picks for what it thinks it can survive, essentially. So for regular human, you know, just for general humans, I um, talk I just gave last weekend, I did this analogy of like, you know, if I see a small spider, I don't like spiders. That's going to throw me probably into some kind of fight or flight, but I could probably fight that spider and win. I can probably stomp it. You know, I'm I believe in you. You know, I think I could do it. So yeah, I might fight that spider and win. Um, but if like a fire breaks out in a building, I highly doubt there's somebody whose reaction is to go punch the fire. Most people want to flee a fire, right? Because your brain knows it can't win a fight with a fire. So, um, and same thing with freeze. Freeze is typically what happens when people go into a real dissociative state. You hear about victims of like interpersonal violence or something saying it happened as if they were watching outside their body. Um, they didn't have a feeling, but they were consciously aware of what was happening, but they had no emotion related to it. That's really a freeze response. And especially when working with children, it's good to know about it because the freeze response is more associated with developing trauma responses than fight and flight. Um, and I think with kids, when they freeze in a classroom setting, it might look nice because they're just, they're not shouting or, you know, kicking or screaming or running. Um, they're just sitting really still, but they might look a little like a deer in headlights. And so it's like being aware of, oh, if they look like stiff and like almost concerned stiff, it's like, might be time to help them make sure check in with how their body's feeling. And, you know. So it's so interesting you say that because my son, when he was two, he had so much trouble transitioning to preschool. Mm. Um, and do you know Mona De La Hook, the author, Be Beyond Behaviors? Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I know. Brain Body Parenting. Okay, so her daughter is a friend of mine and she works in LA as a therapist. So I had her daughter, Kendra, go into my son's preschool and observe him and she said he she's the one who told me like he was severely anxious and she said when he was in preschool in circle time it was like he was there but he, his body was so frozen it's like all he would move was his eyes mm -hmm. and that was you know years ago now but it was the first time I'd ever associated that kind of physical response with being anxious and yeah. um yeah yeah, I think that's a good example of maybe what that could look like. Yeah, and I've seen that um, when I used to work at a preschool over in, in San Jose. I've definitely saw it in some of the autistic kids there. They would just freeze. And it's yeah, like, and it was like he wasn't getting attention yeah. because he wasn't a problem kid, you know? Exactly. It was like, he yeah. was there, but he was like super, super anxious, um, still is to this day. Yeah, but, you know, that's and they're not going to respond. Saying. If a teacher asks them a question, they won't respond. They're just going to sit there and be like, I don't know what just happened because they're not really processing information very well mm -hmm. at that point. Um, so yeah, so it is, I think freeze definitely can go unnoticed, but it also unfortunately leads to more trauma responses. So it's like, and there's a lot of reasons why they say, people say, oh, kids probably go into freeze because they don't have a lot of experience to pull on their brain when it makes the decision what to go in. But I also have this theory that they probably go into freeze because they're very tiny you know, like, what is a kid going to fight in the natural, like out in the woods somewhere? What are they going to win a fight? They're probably not going to win a run either because they're very, I know they're fast to us, but they're, 
you know, as far as wildlife is concerned, they're fairly slow. So, you know, it makes sense to me that they would go into freeze more often um, if that seems to be what ensures more safety for them. Their brain might just go there. Yeah. Um, okay, and I have a... Yeah, I was going to, I have a tricky question for you, Sure, sure. which is, and I'm like, Chris and I are in kind of different places because he works with high schoolers. So he will work with kids who this is their whole life, you know? Um, whereas I'll work with kids who are like five and I have parents who will like, they've been doing a lot of compliance-based approaches. Like their kids seem to have a lot of dysregulation and a lot of, um, trouble feeling safe Mm -hmm. how hard is it to work through that you know like I hear parents asking all the time Mm. will he ever like get to the place where he feels safe and because for a lot of parents I think it feels like a really long road for them they're like I wish I did this years ago and I know Chris in the high school it's totally different because they're you know way older at that point Right. They can kind of empower themselves a little more probably to get kind of their thing. Um, Yeah, I think it does feel like a long haul. Um, I mean, being a parent living with a child is so different than being the person serving the child in the school and not having to see them all the time. And home is where I think the dysregulation likely shows up the most, which a lot of neurodivergent adults know this experience of like you snap more at your family because that's your safe space. That's where you don't mask as much and that's where it comes out. So I think it's similar to kids. They're likely, you know, even if the child does feel a little more safe with the parents, they're likely going to lash out more during part of the healing. I think that might be a natural part of it is um, once you start to learn that if you advocate, then your needs get met, then you are going to advocate more and you're going to get more frustrated if you have to wait for those things to be met. Um, So it makes sense to me that way. I think also there's that issue of in the house, it's hard if you're at the home for the parent themselves to also stay regulated in those situations and to respond with a calm body themselves, um, especially with autistics who are sensitive to the physical state that the adults around them are. Um, And I think that just gets really tricky, especially, you know, in the home, it probably gets really tricky just because of the nature of home life and all the stuff going on and how chaotic it can be. And if you have other siblings, if you have other children, all of that. So um, I've seen some adult autistics online talk about like just even just making it a practice to do um, like we're just going to practice some calming strategies, like just like at a certain point in the evening, you know, for five, 10 minutes, we all practice doing some calming regulation, like co-regulation together. Um, I think having the parent model that they need to take a break too, if they're getting a little too escalated and that can be really easy because it, it hurts to see a child who's melting down and in pain like that. It always hurts me to see it too. Um, and I'm not a parent, so I can only imagine if I'm a parent, that's probably a whole different level of pain to see your child in pain. So, um, but knowing to like, you know, if you feel that your desire to fix it is rushing the process, it might be good to just model like, okay, I need to actually do these things for myself to calm down. You can join me or we can just take a break. I'll be in the room over here and just do this for like a couple minutes, you know, depending on the age, of course, you can't always leave kids on their own. Um, (laughs) sometimes you have to keep eyes on them, but, um, yeah. And I think that it is just such a, it's, it's. It's probably the healing process, I think, um, and I'm 
I'm speaking more also from my own experiences in adult healing, but I think also with kids who just don't have the language to express it, it's still similar. It can be a really up and down thing, almost like the process of grief in a way where it's like you're doing really good and then it can just dip suddenly and just go right back into ugh, kind of territory. And I think just approaching it with a lot of, especially for parents to approach it with a lot of grace for themselves and forgiveness for themselves is a really good place to start. And knowing that those ups and downs are normal, that's a normal part of healing. That's a normal part of learning for children. Um, and it's okay. And you don't have to be a perfect parent to create safety for your child. I think that's really important for them to know. Um, and so that's sort of that trauma informed, like for the adults to be trauma informed about themselves, you know, and to not feel like, Oh no, I traumatized my child from all these compliance based things. It's like, well, you did the best you, you could, and now you're going to learn a different way of doing it. And it's going to be bumpy. The road might be a little bumpy and that's okay. Um, and I think also another thing to consider for neurotypicals, especially who don't have a lot of hypersensitivities, realizing that a hypersensitive child in a really noisy world might just get overwhelmed and feel unfelt and safe just by the world. Like just their physicality is not fitting <laughs> with things. So that can be troublesome too, in the sense of the safety might even be like an internal, they feel like their body is betraying them rather than you know, like they felt fine and then suddenly a noise happens and it just sends them off. That can be a little, um, it does almost feel like your body's just kind of almost betraying you. Cause it's like, I was having fun, man, come on. I don't want to have a meltdown right now. Um, so understanding that as well, that sometimes when children are showing these dysregulations and these behaviors, it might not even have anything to do about the parent. You know, it might be a siren went off two blocks away that the adult didn't even notice, didn't even register because it's just a normal part of life. But to that kid's brain, it was a real issue. And so um, being able to, I think, help them, that's that communication bridge, I think, and where we can really come in is, you know, giving that child some sort of modality to be able to say, my body feels this way help them calm. And then you can start working on why, like what might've happened that had you feel that way. And so they can gain more awareness in themselves. Um, I have found, especially working with preschoolers, they start to gain that self-awareness, at least pointing to like an energy meter. They start to do that decently quickly usually. And what takes a little longer is their likes and their dislikes and what they can tolerate and what they can't. Of course, that's going to take a little longer to figure out. Um, but I often I do the presuming competence of talking to them probably at a higher level than most SLPs would. They probably think I'm a little crazy, but sometimes I get great results doing this. So I just keep doing it. Um, uh, <laughs> I would go up, yeah. Yeah. I like, I go up, I go up to these little preschoolers and I'll be like, you know, like, I want to know, you know, I want to hear about what you feel in your head. What are you thinking in your head? I want to know how much you like that thing. If you don't, if you see something like they're stimming and they like it, I usually want to know, like, do you feel more in your body? Like, do they have synesthesia? <laughs> like, sometimes I want to know things like that, right? Like, do you see colors while you listen to that song? Like, I just want to know. Um, and then getting kind of that like, dislike feeling of being able to describe things also helps, I think, with their awareness of what they can tolerate a little more. And, you know, also will help with advocacy in terms of, I don't like this. Like, don't physically move me, for example. Um, if they don't like that, I think that's all part of that bridging from that safety to that empowerment piece um that can really help but it can be such a struggle especially I mean you know it's so tough with parents because I know like life must be huh, at home when you have you know especially if you're talking multiple children or even just 
a child who doesn't have a communication modality, that's going to be dysregulated anyway. Um, which I usually say sometimes in my talks, I'll say to just the adults, I'm like, if I plop you in the middle of a country where you don't know the language at all, and I just plop you there, you're probably going to feel a little dysregulated. You probably, and you're going to be a little frustrated that you can't get help and you can't tell anybody. So that's also where communication comes in. Um, Sorry, I think I feel like I'm going off. Oh, absolutely. (laughs) You had mentioned earlier, too, which I thought is a great thing to highlight is like in ourselves and with our children for our own selves to be compassionate with our own selves, right? (laughs) Yes. And it's so key and so hard because like you want to do your best all the time. And it's like, well, you know, no one's perfect. And and what's so great about trauma-informed care, if it can become this bigger thing for us all as professionals to kind of get on board with and learn about is um, it would create more of a community of safe people. So it's not on one person's shoulders to create the safety. It's everybody working together, which then just moves societal stuff a little more, you know, toward safe for everybody. Yeah. Should be great, ideally. Um, oh, I also do the presuming competence in the sense of presuming they can take it, by the way, with preschoolers. Even with my preschoolers, when they started getting really good at identifying, they had a lot of staff at that school who couldn't really regulate and would get really anxious and really stressed, and that would dysregulate the kids. When they got good at telling things to me, I would sometimes say to them, I'm like, listen, you are so good at recognizing your body. The adults aren't. They can't <laughs> recognize it. <laughs> I'd be like, there's a lot of adults who can't do this, just so you know. It's not you, it's them who can't do it, right? Um, So I think that's also an important piece to let, especially autistics know where it's like, trust your instincts. Your instincts are great. There's a lot of people who don't know this stuff though. Oh my gosh, you just said so many. There are just so many great takeaways. I feel like everyone needs to go back, listen to this again. (laughs) You said there were so many great things um, to think about and just so many golden nuggets in there. And, you know, we just are so thankful to have you come on. We appreciate your time. And also, I was going to say, if you could let everyone know where it is that they could find you. Yeah, sure. So I do have a website. Um, It's trauma-informed-slp.com. And I also have my podcast, the Trauma-Informed SLP. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, all those places. Um, And on my website, I do have links to like Instagram and Facebook I'm not currently on Twitter. Maybe at some point I will. Um, and like you said, there are some other people who have trauma-informed SLP as their, their hold. So on Instagram, it's becoming trauma-informed SLPs. Um, and we will yeah. throw that link up there. And it sounds like you're doing a lot of speaking. So if anyone out there is looking yeah. for speakers on this topic, trainers. you should definitely hit up Kim. Yeah, hit me up. Yay. All right. Kim, thank you so much for uh, coming on this episode. Yeah, we really appreciate it. Such valuable information. I love getting to talk about this stuff. So thank you so much. Um, Change your lives right here. I love talking to like-minded people. It just makes me feel so, it's so great. It's so edifying. (laughs) Thank you so much. All right, everyone. Well, thanks for tuning in. Until next time, be cool and be legendary. Bye-bye. Bye. If you enjoyed today's episode, hit subscribe, write a review, or share it with a friend. Thanks for tuning in. We'll catch you next time.